turn now to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, beginning in the first verse. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the great month of the first month as I was by the side of the great river that is the Tigris I lifted my eyes and looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz his body was like beryl his face like the appearance of lightning his eyes like torches of fire his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly a, t- a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I now speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. Or how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince.
Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we pray that you would enable us to understand even some of these words. Lord, we have not set our heart to understand as fully and completely and with as long standing as Daniel, this man greatly beloved, one who turned away from all pleasant food for this long period of time in order that he might know the truth of God. But, O Heavenly Father, we who are in great need of this word, how we pray that you would yet show us Christ in these things and give us the word that is for us this day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to Daniel chapter 10. And this chapter, in parallel fashion to some others, consists of uh, Daniel's introduction or explanation of the situation first, and then the vision itself and the explanation of that vision that was given to him. And also, as usual, there are some things which we frankly don't know for certain. It's hard to say, for instance, whether this one, this glorious appearance uh, that, that appeared to him, the one that put Daniel into the swoon, is also the same one that gives the explanation. It's hard to say whether one or both of these are uh, angels or whether this is Christ himself. And so I, I do not speak dogmatically on these things, but let me just lay out the basic framework, the basic facts of things that we, we have that the image of this heavenly, glorious man looks very much like that of Christ in Revelation 1. Almost word for word. And I think, therefore, that we should take this to be an image of Christ. And on the other hand, the one that gives the explanation to Daniel refers in the third person to Michael, your prince. And, of course, the question is, who could possibly be the prince of Daniel, certainly not an angel who is given as a ministering spirit to the saints. This must somehow be a reference to Christ, and therefore I take it as a, a, a vision of Christ and then an explanation given by an angel. Well, perhaps be the angel Gabriel, as has been the case recently. Now, what is then seen? I'm not going to focus on this time of the events that are being described. Indeed, it is just mainly an explanation of what is then explained at length in chapter 11. But what is given to us is a glimpse of Christ, and that should be very precious to us. And that's the thing that we should focus on. As we think, we, we used to, when we were in the book of Revelation, we're reminded constantly, what is this book about? It is not about arcane things. It is not about details that are of interest to, to, to those who uh, sort of spend their lives on these obscure elements. It's a revelation of Christ, Jesus Christ, given to his church. And so we see something of Christ here in his physical appearance and also in what he does. Now, in his physical appearance, what do we see in all this glorious? Well, what we see is holiness, actually. We see the supreme trait, the supreme attribute of the living God supremely to be seen in Christ Jesus. We see his holiness, all of his appearance and his face and his eyes and his arms and his 
feet. It's all about this burning holiness of God, which we can never hear enough about, which we can never set sufficiently before our hearts and minds. We think of this, of Christ in all of his glorious, beautiful holiness. Of all the things that we could possibly know about God, this is the most important that we know his holiness. Of all the ways in which we worship God, we must worship him in his holiness. And apart from a knowledge of his holiness, apart from an awareness of his holiness, we cannot worship him aright. We cannot live our lives the way we've been called to live. We are we're hopeless. And we have been granted then this vision of Christ and his holiness. But beyond that then, as the angel explains the vision, as explains what's going on, the thing that is highlighted for attention is that this prince, our prince, that he fights for us, that he's a warrior, that he is there fighting for his people. And I think we need to know that too. Because frankly, we're pretty weak. And we are defenseless. And were we simply to focus on the events of this world, even worse were we to go to other parts. This is bad enough here, politically, culturally, you name it. Schools, all the rest of it, it's pretty bad here, it's true. But it's even worse in other places, as I have reason to be reminded of. Even worse. And were we to think merely of those things, we would be in despair. A wonderful, wonderful thing is that Christ is a warrior king. He's the one who's fighting these battles for us. He's the one who's going to defeat our enemies. And that is his business at hand. So we should be reminded of that. You know, so this, he could hear the message of fear not. Not because Daniel himself was such a great warrior. He wasn't. He was a civil servant. He served in the court of this oriental king. Well, many, several of them, this, these emperors. And he was an old man. He didn't have much strength. I don't think he was going about in armor with many weapons. But Christ himself is this warrior king. And he will fight for us. Well, the subject of the sermon, very simply, is the vision of Christ. And uh, with these three simple points. First, Daniel sets his heart to understand, because that's crucial. We must set our hearts to understand, like Daniel, if we're going to see Christ. Secondly, Christ in his holiness, as we consider that image itself. And third, Christ as warrior. So Daniel sets his heart to understand Christ in his holiness and Christ as warrior. So first, Daniel sets his heart to understand. In verse 2 we read, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now, just previously, we've been talking about the purpose of fasting, among other things, for, the, for mourning, and he particularly highlights it. It's appropriate in mourning, and also for preparing us to seek the Lord, preparing us and, and fitting us out to pray, and moving us aside from the uh, 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 cons- constant concerns of the things of this world and and focusing our attention a little bit more on spiritual things, and even in practical ways, making prayer more uh, easy for us. And notice 
the way that he goes about it, it it's not that he refrained from all food altogether. It was no pleasant food, no meat, no wine. It was um, just the basics that he had. Now, again, we don't go into, um, in Calvin's commentary, makes a specific point of the hypocrisy of those who's thinking particularly of the Roman Catholic Church that imagines going without red meat, you know, as, as a great uh, fast when they give themselves to all sorts of de- delicacies of seafood and, and other such things. Well, we don't do any of this for show. And if our situation requires or is, it lends itself to a prolonged period of, of mourning, a prolonged period of preparing ourselves to seek the Lord in, in prayer, we can't go without food altogether. So it's not that for show we give up chocolate for Lent or something like that. Really, we put aside all kinds of delicacies, all sorts of things beyond the basics um, that we, we carry on in our, our bodily condition or, in order that we might have strength, but just enough to keep us going. That's what Daniel is doing. Now, notice how the angel describes what Daniel has done, though. He says in verse 12, he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, from, before, from the very first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. All right? So he had set his heart to understand. His situation was one who did not understand what was going on. We, we understand this to be some uh, difficulty, some trouble with the, the people of God. We know that is Daniel's great concern of Zion, of the church. And there was some problem, some difficulty. And he's setting his heart to understand the situation. And he is setting his heart to humble himself before his God. Now, as I, I say that he was setting him, him, his heart to understand the things of God, two things, I think, should amaze us. The first is that people today, and I count myself among them, are so little concerned with the things of God that they don't really care much to understand them. We don't see a yearning in the church to understand great things of God. We don't see a yearning to grow in their understanding and knowledge of our God and of true theology. We don't see among our children and young people that great desire, for instance, to know the whole catechism or to memorize great portions of scripture. And I think that this should indeed amaze us and humble us that such things should be the case in our day. We should set ourselves rather to pray that the Lord would change our hearts on these things. Another thing I think that amazes us that those who are concerned with these things, and again I include myself in this number, imagine that they can be had just for the, the asking. That these great things of God, these great treasures of knowledge, these great treasures of understanding of the truth are just there for a song. I have heard, for instance, a, a great preacher, one, a name whom we'd all know, uh, a man who spent his entire youth in the diligent study of God's truth, labored long and hard in prayer, Uh, shaped by many trials and long labors and so forth, describe young men men who'd come to him and and ask him how to, that they can preach like him as if it could all be had in in the course of a day, that he could give some sort of secret to such a fruitful ministry as if it could be had in some easy and cheap way. My friends, nothing of value comes cheaply. You get what you pay for. 
And we believe in a gospel of grace, absolutely. Praise God, we are justified entirely for the asking as we put our faith in Christ. But that itself came at an enormous cost. And our sanctification, our growth in grace, our growth in our gifts, our ability to minister, our, li- our Christ-likeness, all of these things come at a cost. And they're not to be had for a song. And Daniel himself, we are not Daniel. We are not in his league. And here, as he desires to understand, he mourns for these three weeks and sets himself aside and, and gives himself diligently to seek his Lord. Well, we must be like that. I mentioned, by the way, Daniel, uh, uh, Matthew Henry this morning, who is rightly recognized alongside of, Ca- of, of Calvin as one of the great commentators in the history of the church. And you read it and you're just amazed. Insight after insight. How does he get these things? Where do they come from? And it's an amazing thing. And then, is it mere coincidence that besides this, this greatest of all commentaries series that he's got, he also happens to have written one of the great books on prayer. Is, is that mere coincidence? Or do you think those things are somehow related? I think it's because this man knew how to pray, was so exercised and practice in diligent, humble, expectant, uh, dependent prayer that God enabled him to see so many great things in his word. Well, as I say, so it is with Daniel here that he set his heart to understand and to humble himself before God because, of course, God does not give such privileges to the proud. We know, first of all, from Psalm 10.4 that the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. If uh, One of the ways to describe the wicked is to say that God is not in his thoughts. If you have, uh, are able to spend a week and God does not come into your mind, the, the Bible has a word for you. You are one of the wicked. That is a apt description of you. That God does not come into your thoughts. You are one of these wicked who does not seek God. But the reason why he does it, the reason why it does not come into it, the reason why it's not true what we were reading this morning uh, in, in Luke chapter 12 of fearing God, the reason why he doesn't do that is because he's proud. He's not humble. He's not dependent upon the living God. He is lifted up in, proud, in pride and he thinks he needs nothing of God. So the proud himself, the wicked, will not seek God in his pride. But beyond that, God actively resists the proud, as it is said in numerous places throughout Scripture. So even those who do seek to know these things, if they do so in their pride rather than in your humility, God is not going to grant them. God is going to resist your efforts. He certainly will not grant that which you seek. So here's the paradox. Those who would know the most about God and thus have the most to be to be proudful about, theoretically, must also be the most humble. And I I think we see that absolutely lived out in the life of Daniel. What did Daniel have, objectively speaking, to uh, to be humble about? He was a man elevated not once, not twice, but multiple times in multiple different administrations to the absolute highest position in the empire. And beyond that was given access to the great secrets and mysteries of God in, in all these prophecies and visions. 
And if we don't even have any sin recorded or failure or mistake even, his enemies couldn't even find a mere mistake in his administration. He had no reason like that to be humble. Yet we see so very clearly his deep and abiding humility before the living God. You see, again, it's a characteristic of prideful people to look around and compare themselves and say, I have something compared to you or to you. I found something of which I'm better, and therefore I lift myself up in pride relative to you. But Daniel didn't think about that. I think Daniel spent most of his time, most of his efforts along those lines, thinking about the Almighty God, of whom he was a worm in his sight. And by that standard, by the standard of God's perfect holiness, by the standard of his almighty power and perfect wisdom and knowledge and all the rest of these things, Daniel had every reason to be humbled in his sight. And he was. He lived in the presence before the face of the living God and he was continually in humility because of it. Now we know that such a man, coming in such a way to seek God, was surely going to be heard. And so it was with Daniel. In fact, we were told that very from the very first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. Interesting, of course, that they weren't answered on that very first day. And I think that we should keep that in mind sometimes. We wonder if God is hearing our prayers because there is a delay in the thing that we are hoping whether in our own understanding or whether in some circumstance or whatnot, because it hasn't already happened, we wonder if God is listening, we wonder if he's heard. But here we have the assurance that his people that come in such a way, meaning that we truly and sincerely set our heart to seek him and come in humility, I think that we also would be heard immediately by God. Well, our second point, our first, of course, is, is that he set, Daniel set his heart to understand. But secondly, we see this vision of Christ in his holiness. In verse 5, I lifted my eyes and looked and beheld a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. As I have said, this is all very much like the description of Christ that is given in Revelation chapter 1. I'll just read that. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now, in all those things, what does that point us to? These various attributes or aspects of this physical appearance. Well, as I I mentioned already, it's to holiness. This is his holiness. What do these these things point to but the set-apartness of God and the moral purity of God? And, And these are no isolated aspects of Christ. Unfortunately, we know about that. We know about ourselves and other people that there's some part of them that seems sanctified, some part of them that's set apart, some part of them that's maybe morally pure, but we know it's mixed with many other things. 
Even in Daniel, we have that picture of the image, the great image, and the head of gold, but the other part, down to the feet, end up being very mixed in different ways. But that's not the image of Christ. From head to toe, it is a picture of purity and of being set apart from all that is impure, all that is uh, defiled. His face, for instance, is like lightning. I don't, a few things strike terror in the heart of man as much as lightning on a dark night somewhere. A sudden coming of a thunderclap and lightning there. And you see the immense energy, um, the intense light that comes in lightning. It is searing. And you see, of course, anything in its path is immediately destroyed, vaporized, set on fire sometimes, um, electrocuted, whatever. And this is like his face. This is a way that you behold such a face. It's not a face that you can, in, in your humanness, gaze upon easily. And his eyes like torches of fire. Again, we don't know much about this because our eyes are impure. We behold and very often take pleasure in things that are impure. But we know that Christ is too pure to behold sin. And all that is sinful is consumed in the presence of his burning holiness. In the picture of the angel of the Lord, of Christ himself appearing to Moses in the burning bush. There's the bush, and it's not consumed. It's burning, but it's not consumed. There's nothing sinful about that shrub that it should be consumed. But rather, the pres- in, if, for those who are sinners, they are consumed in the presence of a holy God. And it says, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. His walk, his actions, everything that he is, they all reflect that perfect holiness absolutely perfectly. And this is his beauty. This is his glory. This is, his, this is the holiness of the Lord. It's not that his holiness is sort of like gold. I think rather it's the other. We're describing something physically, but I think God created something like gold or burnished bronze or lightning or all these things in order to give us a picture of what holiness is like in its purity. There's nothing impure in a lightning bolt, is there? In its, in its burning nature consuming that, that, that which is false before it. In its heat and in its light and in all these things, it is a picture of holiness. Well, this is the Christ that he sees. And this is a Christ that we need to see. I'll mention this again in the application, but this is the picture of Christ that needs to be before us for those who are tempted to sin. What sort of image of Christ do we need to think about when we are tempted to sin? Christ in his holiness. His burning holiness, his face as lightning, his, his eyes as flame of fire, too pure to behold anything sinful, and all that is sinful consumed in his presence like a furnace. That's the image that ought to be before us. Well, Daniel sees Christ, and, second, and thirdly, um, or this, this image of, of Christ and his holiness But thirdly, Christ as warrior is not only Christ in his holiness, which is the first and supreme attribute and aspect of God that we think of, but particularly we see Christ as warrior in the description that that, uh, comes after this. Uh, The angel 
whoever it might be, in verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. And then again in verse 20, And he said to me, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. So it is very clear what is going on. There is a war going on. There is a battle. Now we cannot understand every aspect of it. It's an interesting thing, as we have already seen the prophecy of the various kingdoms and uh, empires that will rise and fall. There seems to be some kind of parallel in the spiritual world, and I, I don't claim to know everything about that. But one thing we certainly understand is that we have an enemy. He is real, but he is spiritual. He is Satan and all those who follow him. And so we understand from Ephesians that our, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against spiritual entities, you see. Because as sin entered this world, the deception of Satan, even now it is sustained by his, his deception, and the, the work of redemption in this world is absolutely of a continual warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there are physical manifestations and elements of this, and there are spiritual ones, and the spiritual ones are more important. Now, in all of that, so we, see, we understand there is a warfare going on. And notice, by the way, at the very least, that the angels themselves are certainly involved in this warfare. One of the two of them is certainly an angel, and he is involved in this fight. If, in, in, if this is uh, Gabriel, whom we understand to be particularly given as a messenger of God, we understand then, if, if anything, maybe that's a side job because it seems like he's spending most of his time actually engaged in this warfare. Now, again, as I, I say, um, okay, so he's engaged. Let's, let's just say, as we think is probably the case, that Michael is a way of speaking of Christ. In fact, that word in Hebrew might well refer to the one who is God, uh, Mishael, and um, we can also say, of course, he is the prince of the people of God. All right. Again, not speaking dogmatically, but let's say that's the case. Then when Gabriel, this great warrior angel, is in trouble, by the way, it comes to me, uh, doesn't it, of, of, it gives you a little bit more insight into the way that this interaction in Luke, the early uh, chapters of Luke, as he interacts with Zacharias, and, and Zacharias <laughs> says, uh, how do I know these things are, are, are true? And, and, and Gabriel um, ra- raises an eyebrow there with him because he's, of course, this, uh, a great warrior angel in his own right, as well as a messenger. And he's been fighting the battles of the living God um, all these many uh, centuries and is, stands in the presence of God, and he's not one to be trifled with. But anyways, when Gabriel, this great warrior angel, is in trouble, who does he call? It's a really good thing that he's not a, li- a liberal. Again, it's, it's a really good thing that that portrait I keep referring to of, that we see on liberal churches of the 1960s, effeminate uh, Jesus with a soft skin and the pastel 
uh, robe and the, the long uh, silken hair. It's a good thing that uh, that's not the situation because I, don't, I wouldn't call him uh, if I was in trouble. And I don't think that Gabriel would either. But thankfully, that's not our situation as Christians. The real Jesus Christ is our warrior king. And when even someone as strong and as mighty as one of the mightiest of angels, this proven warrior is in trouble, he calls the Lord Jesus Christ and he comes to fight. And of course, we know that he wins. The Shorter Catechism number 26 says, How does, ask a question, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's what he does as a king. He is able to do these things because he is a great warrior. And we must have that image before us as well. If we say that we ought to have the image of Christ and his holiness before us as we are tempted to sin, I think that as we are tempted to fear, as we are tempted to be anxious, we ought to have the image of Christ as the great warrior king before us. Indeed, I think this is very much the way it functioned for Daniel, who twice had to be told, do not fear. Well, let us apply these things to us. Uh, First of all, set your heart to know God. So our first application is very simple. Set your heart to know God. You ought to have in your heart a desire to know more than you do. I know some of you pretty well. I know myself. And one thing I can say absolutely certainly about all of us is that we do not know God enough. We do not understand the things of truth enough. We should know more. And I want to remind us as well that what we might even have theoretically and might be able to explain on a test in the clear light of day, if these things are not deeper and deeper and deeper than what they are, they all go out the window when trouble comes. We've got to have these things down more in more than one way, in more than one dimension, in all of their interconnections, which are infinite, and to have them repeated because they seem to fly out the window we, we apply ourselves to, to learn scripture one day and it's gone the next. We, we learn some aspect of the catechism or other parts of theology and it's just, it goes away. This is our life. This is our reality and our state of humiliation. This is our situation and our fallen bodies and brains. And we must continually fight that good fight. We must set our heart to know God. Now, for all Christians, of course, this is the object of our worship. The only way that our worship is going to be more like heaven, the only way we're going to derive greater joy from that, both corporately and in our homes, as we have our own worship at home, the only way that happens is that we know more of God. Oh, that we could be filled with that vision of Christ that he received that day. Do you think he was able to worship? Absolutely. We see him worshiping. That's the thing. He is, he is blown away with it. I mean, he is so far removed from standing in his pride and indifference. And isn't that our problem? Our indifference to these things. Daniel was not indifferent. He caught a glimpse of Christ Jesus. And he was there on his face, worshiping him. Well, we need to have that heart, the same heart that Daniel did, because it's that heart that is going to see Christ, a heart that sets himself to seek God and to understand God. 
And so, as I look, for, for some of us, this will be a vocation in the proper sense. There are some among us who are called to the ministry. And the church courts have affirmed them in that. There's others who are thinking about these things and may well in the future be called to these things. And that will be your job. And you should set yourself absolutely more diligently, more assiduously than any professional to learn these things. But for all Christians, it should at least be an advocation, a hobby. You know, we live in a time where where we have it easy enough that we have our hobbies. Everyone has some kind of hobby, even if we don't have much time to to do them all the time. When we get a little bit of time, we might just engage in this kind of hobby. Well, maybe there's music, maybe there's gardening, maybe there's running, stamp collecting, whatever it might be. But can theology, even a casual study of it, have some place in that list of hobbies? Can that not feature somewhere in your, your list of things that you're interested in and want to know more about? I think it probably could. You know, this, of course, a continual dependence upon the word of God in our devotions is absolutely necessary for our spiritual survival, of course. It's like our daily food. We must have it. But beyond that, there should be an interest to know more. Again, differently, we all have different gifts. I don't say we all should, should be the same in that. But there ought to be a basic desire to know more about God. Secondly, we should set the images of Christ before us in these different ways. Christ is so wonderful. We can't just have one image of him. And in Scripture does not give us just one image of him. That's why we have him in all these different ways. And we should have an array of these things before us to pull out in times of need. And I think that surely at the first flash of temptation to sin, the flash of lightning should come before you. Those eyes that are burning like fire. Remember, those eyes are watching you. Those are the eyes that see you. This is the face that beholds you. And you should fear to sin against such a one. You should fear to sin in the presence, in the sight of such a Christ. Now, we are thankful indeed that we also have of Christ, the image of Christ as our sympathetic high priest. But that's, that's, that's the break, break glass later on, okay? That's not our first resort. It's not one who is tempted to sin is thinking about Christ in his, his willingness to, to sympathize and to forgive us. That's not the image that is rightly before us, but rather Christ in his holiness that hates sin, that laid down his life to put an end to sin. That's the image that should be before us. And likewise, again, of Christ as a warrior king, as a people who are singularly given to anxiety, and I really do think this is one of the great things we struggle with, all of us, anxiety and worry, we should not fear because Christ really is a warrior king. None of us are anywhere near, have anywhere near the power of Gabriel. Again, if Gabriel were to himself appear, we would all be on our face before him. But he, when he's in the dark alley, he calls the real warrior king, Christ Jesus. And we need to have that picture before us as well. He's the one who who fights these fights for us. Yes, we're weak, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But we have at the other end of the radio one who is mighty. One who is the great warrior king who will defend us and who's going to conquer all his and our enemies.
Thirdly, I have to say, be assured of the truth of Scripture. We did not go over this directly, but in verse 21 it says, But I will tell you what is noted in the Scripture of truth. And we know, of course, that Gabriel, this great messenger of God, he does not innovate. He does not come and say, you know, I have a a new perspective on the prophecy that I'd like to give you. He, He says, I'm going to tell you what is written in the scripture of truth. And we need in this day, and I have, I have sort of promised myself that I will not pass on an opportunity to reinforce the doctrine of scripture to us because it is always perpetually under attack. We do not ever think that that battle was won by the generation before us of evangelicals who said that scripture is inerrant. It, that, that battle is simply an ongoing one and we'll never be through that. And I want to remind you of all the doctrine of Scripture. It is not just that it is inspired. It is all of it inspired. It is plenary inspiration. Every part of Scripture. And it's not just every part. It is verbally inspired. All the words. Every last word of Scripture has been inspired by the living God. And of course, for that reason, it is inerrant and authoritative. There can be no errors when Christ himself has breathed out all these words through the Holy Spirit, using, of course, the human author, the human instruments of these things, those who wrote these things. Yes, of course, he used all the various circumstances. He can do that because he's God. He works these things as a maestro conducting his orchestra, all those instruments of Scripture, and makes it perfectly to be. But the end of all that is there's not one single thing in error throughout all of Scripture that is all perfectly true and accurate. And I would say, and I think it's particularly good for us to recognize in such a chapter, that it's perspicuous. Start with those of you hobbyists in theology, the doctrine of perspicuity. It's clear. And that doctrine does not say that every part of Scripture is equally clear. It's not like the doctrine of inspiration in that way, where every part of Scripture is equally and completely inspired. Rather, it is that... Uh, the things that are necessary for our salvation absolutely are clear, and that the other things, through a diligent use of the rest of Scripture, understanding all of its implications and connections, and mainly comparing those things that are less clear with the things that are more clear, that those things also become clear. Certainly those things that are for our salvation and for our faith and life. And finally, and I would say most importantly, it is sufficient Scripture is really sufficient. We don't need something else. I think this is where the battle line is being drawn in our day. And where people are saying that the crucial way, the only way you're ever understanding Scripture is by the historical context. And basically meaning, you have to accept my version of the way things really were. You, you, step one, the only way you possibly understand Scripture is by historical context. Nonsense! The entire church has lived largely in ignorance of precisely what the context was. And somehow, of course, they came to saving truth about these things. That is not the case at all. We don't have to be experts in, and two, by the way, how do we know these things? We don't have, in order to have the, uh, the, the way to, the inerrant way of understanding this, we'd have to have some inspired, inerrant guide to the context of Scripture. We don't have that. Instead, we have guys who are false teachers and heretics coming up with their, their, their very self-interested way of saying this is what was really happening. Again, like the new perspective. N.T. Wright comes and says, let me tell you what was really going on. And now you understand Scripture 
when I tell you that all that you ever thought about Paul was, is wrong. And let me explain to you what his real situation was. And then he offers you an entire new theology that is absolutely an undermining and indeed a contradiction of the entire Reformed faith. We don't need that. Scripture is sufficient. If someone ever says that any part of inspir- any interpretation is absolutely dependent on something else apart from Scripture, some extra biblical data, walk away. Scripture interprets itself. Sometimes it's useful, sometimes it's helpful to know the rest of those details, but they're not necessary to know any part of Scripture. All right. Finally, fourthly and finally, do not fear. This is the repeated assurance given to Daniel. Do not fear, Daniel. Verse 19, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. See how this goes? Man greatly beloved, fear not. These warriors, Gabriel and his Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, both of them with their weapons and their armor and and fresh from the fight. He says, man greatly beloved, weak, frail man that you are, peace be to you. Be to you, fear not. Be strong, he says. Be strong. And he strengthened. And so when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Let that be the case for us tonight. Our Lord speaks to us through the words, yes, of Gabriel. These inspired words, he, he says to us, fear not. Men, women, greatly, children, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong, yes, be strong. So says our warrior king, our holy God, to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful indeed that you have granted us an image, a picture of Christ. Lord, we are not deserving of such things. In fact, Lord, we are all too aware that we have not sought ourselves to understand The knowledge of the truth, the vision and understanding of Christ is not high enough on our list of priorities. But you and your goodness have revealed Christ to us nonetheless. And Lord, how we pray that his image spiritually would be imprinted upon us and that it would be with us. And that Lord, as the whole world continually seeks to undermine every part of Christ and his truth, to feed us lies and to substitute deception how we pray, Lord, that this, these truths about Christ would remain with us. You indeed would set our hearts to understand, to know, and that you'd grant us that we should continually think of Christ in all of his perfect holiness, particularly when we are tempted to sin. And Christ is our great warrior king, able to deliver us from everything that threatens, and that we'd be encouraged and strengthened by these things, and that we'd not fear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.